Immigration Advocates Network podcast. Hello, welcome to the Immigration Advocates Network podcast interview with Kathleen O'Connor, the Deputy Chief at the Department of Justice's Human Rights and Special Prosecution Section. Welcome, Kathleen. Thank you, Patricia. Can you go ahead and give us a brief introduction, a brief description of the Human Rights and Special Prosecution Section and what it does? Sure. And first, let me thank you very much for the opportunity to speak with you today and to reach out to all the important immigration organizations and advocates that are doing such terrific work. Um, It's a real honor to speak to you, and uh, we look forward to working with you. The Human Rights and Special Prosecution Section is a relatively new section within the Department of Justice. It falls in the criminal division, and it was created by Congress in 2010 um, and given uh, charge of three portfolios, including international human smuggling, international violent crime, and the portfolio that I'm in charge of, which is the human rights portfolio. Our section um, consists of uh, regional teams, of prosecutors, historians, and uh, paralegals who work closely with our law enforcement partners to investigate and prosecute human rights violations. As part of the growing international movement towards um, holding human rights violators and more criminals um, accountable for their actions. Those law enforcement partners include the FBI's war crimes and genocide units and ICE's human rights violators and war crimes units. And what about your own background? Can you talk a little bit about how you come to this work? Sure. I've been uh, a career prosecutor with the Department of Justice for over 20 years. I started out working at the U.S. Attorney's Office as a line prosecutor, and I prosecuted crimes ranging from prostitution to murder. And then eventually I served as um, chief of various sections within that office, including chief of the intake section, violent crime section, and also the community prosecution section. About seven years ago, I moved to the criminal division, and I worked uh, with international partners on reforming justice sector um, and criminal justice systems throughout the world. Um, And then about a year ago, I was selected to serve as the deputy chief of this section, the Human Rights and Special Prosecution section. Um, And I also, in this job, uh, support the work of the Atrocities Prevention Board. And you mentioned that the Human Rights and Special Prosecution section has been around since 2010. I'm wondering under what treaty or statute or regulations the work and the section is authorized. Well, we were created by Congress, and um, we are here to prosecute crimes under several substantive statutes. Um, As you know, the U.S. is a party to several human rights conventions, including the Geneva Convention, conventions and the U.S. U.N. Convention Against Torture, um, and Congress has enacted enabling legislation, uh, and we are responsible for prosecuting human rights violators using all the tools in the toolbox that we have here at DOJ, but including uh, substantive statutes, and those statutes include genocide, 
war crimes, torture, and the use or recruitment of child soldiers. So we use these statutes to go after persons who are here in the United States and who have committed atrocities abroad, overseas. Because these statutes are relatively new and the jurisdiction sometimes is limited, I mentioned that we use every tool in our toolbox. So beyond the substantive statutes that I mentioned, that's genocide, war crimes, torture, and child soldiers, we also um, use immigration fraud, extradition, civil denaturalization, and removal to go after individuals who have committed atrocities overseas. Hmm. And um, what uh, rises to the level of atrocity or human rights violation? Is there a cross-the-board definition on that, or what's your working definition? Well, it depends. You know, we look at the conduct, and we look at whether the conduct fits the statute. That is, conduct including genocide, torture, persecution, murder, and rape all can be uh, prosecuted under the statute. Again, the use and recruitment of child soldiers. So we look at the conduct, we look at our statutes, and we then decide what and whether to charge. All right. And I'm wondering about the harm that you need to show, whether it would be enough if someone was, uh, you know, threatened um, or harassed or uh sort of psychologically tortured, perhaps. Right. So generally I would say, yes, we um, need to prove harm, but not always. It depends on the statute. Um, so, for example, um, under the child soldiers statute, we do not need to prove harm to the child. The elements of that statute require us to prove that the offender recruited or used a child, that is defined as a child is um, under the age of 15 years, to participate in hostilities. So the focus here is on the conduct of the person using the children. And uh, while we don't need to prove harm, clearly this practice does harm uh, communities, families, and also children, both psychologically and sometimes you know, physically. But another example would be torture, for example. That harm um, can be actual or threatened, physical or mental. But we would have to prove that the harm um, caused severe pain, and it was committed by a person under color of law on a victim in custody or control of that person. So each situ situation is very different. And we examine each allegation carefully in light of the many tools that we have available to us. And why don't you talk about how you examine and how you investigate the cases and maybe give some examples of cases that you have prosecuted? Okay. Um, well, as you can imagine, these cases are very difficult to investigate and prosecute. Many of the allegations that we uh, investigate um, happened years ago, sometimes 15 or 20 years ago. That means that the crime scenes are often non-existent. Uh, the evidence is hard to find. Witnesses are difficult to find and their memories fade. Victims 
um, are difficult to find as well. So for all of these reasons, the cases are really very difficult to, to prosecute. Um, and from allegation to resolution, uh, oftentimes these cases uh, take months and sometimes years to, to resolve. But the good news is we are working closely with our law enforcement partners, and these are dedicated units who understand the issues, who understand the sensitivities of victims and witnesses. And together as a team, we have had a number of successes and we're dedicated to making these cases happen. Uh, two examples that I could um, share with you. One is a case that your listeners probably know about. Um, it concerns a, a man named Roy Belfast, and he's also known as Chucky Taylor. He's the son of Charles Taylor, the Liberian president. Uh, Chucky Taylor is a U.S. citizen. He was born in Massachusetts and raised in Florida. And after his father became president of Liberia, he called his son over to Liberia to serve as the head of the anti-terrorist unit. And that happened from about 1999 to 2003. Um, Chucky Taylor then, leave, after he left Liberia, he came back to the United States. Uh, he was arrested and eventually we charged him with torture. And um, at trial, witnesses and victims testified that he burned victims with scalding water, molten plastic, cigarettes. Uh, he used electric, electric shock against his victims, and he beat them. After all the evidence was in, a jury in Florida convicted him of torture, and he's currently serving a sentence of 97 years. That was a case that we brought under our substantive torture statute. Another example is a case that we brought under immigration fraud statute. And uh, the reason for that is because the conduct occurred in 1982, well before the substantive statutes were enacted. And this case involved um, actions that occurred in Guatemala during the Guatemalan Civil War. The government believed that um, a group of anti-government rebels had stashed a cache of rifles in their village and sent a special forces unit to the village to um, capture the rebels and capture the rifles. So this group went into the village in, located in northeastern Guatemala, didn't find the rifles, um, but nonetheless rounded up all the villagers. There was about 250 villagers at the time. They rounded them up, separated the men and boys from the women and girls. They raped the women and girls. Then they proceeded to kill all of the villagers. And they killed them by smashing their heads with sledgehammers and also throwing them down the village well. That well was exhumed. Uh, bodies from the well were exhumed. And over 150 skeletons were recovered from the well. Over 60% of those skeletons um, were children under the age of 12. So these are the kinds of cases that we have and uh, investigations that we're conducting. In that case, the Guatemalan case, 
one of the soldiers came to the United States and became a U.S. citizen. He lived a really terrific life, living the American dream, and he was a stellar citizen. He had no problems with the law. He was paying his taxes. But we uh, found out that he was here from the Guatemalan prosecutor, and we um, began an investigation. And once we had gathered a certain amount of evidence, we confronted this man with the evidence we had. He confessed. We ended up um, taking a plea from him. And uh, at sentencing, the judge gave him the maximum uh, sentence under the immigration fraud statute. So this man is serving a sentence of 10 years. When his sentence is complete, he'll be stripped of his citizenship and he'll be sent back to Guatemala where he'll face charges in Guatemala for the substantive crime. Mm. Uh, these are, I mean, these are terrible stories. I, I wonder how hard it must be to find uh, victims or witnesses who, that are willing to come forward. How could a person contact your office if he or she knew about former countrymen living like that in the United States? Um, surprisingly enough, there are cases, and we're finding many cases like uh, this in the United States where people are here, they're seeking a new life, they, they're immigrants from another country, and they want to start a new life, and then they run into a person who has persecuted them or uh, tortured them in, back in their home country. And that is our mission, to keep that from happening. So we do encourage people who have been persecuted or abused um, overseas, abroad, who have come here. We encourage them to contact us and share with us their story. They can do it in a number of ways. Certainly they can contact me directly at HRSP, the Human Rights and Special Prosecution Section, we have a tip line, which is HRSP tips at usdoj.gov. We have a toll-free um, tip line as well, where they can call and uh, leave their information. All of this is in a brochure that I'm going to be providing to you, and uh, I would love it if you would post this online. <laughs> uh, but we encourage people to call, however, uh, contact us however they feel comfortable through a phone or email. Mm. And can a person make a confidential report? Absolutely. There's no need to leave um, any identifying information, but to the extent that the caller or emailer wishes to have contact with us and wishes for us to um, get in touch with them, we are happy to do that. I mean, ultimately, in order to prosecute these cases, we do need evidence, and evidence means victims and witnesses. Um, but, you know, uh, if, if the caller or the person who, with the information doesn't feel comfortable uh, leaving their name or contact information, that's perfectly fine, and we may be able to follow up with that information using other evidence as well. Okay. And how do you reassure a person who is afraid to report a human rights abuser? Our paramount concern is the, the victim and witness. We, um, we 
we encourage people to make reports. We encourage uh, sharing of information, but we um, we will not go forward on an allegation without uh, addressing the concerns of the witness or victim. That's our paramount concern, and that is also true of our dedicated law enforcement partners, the FBI and ICE. Uh, together, we work as a team to understand what the needs and concerns of the victim or the witness and address those concerns before we move forward. And could a third party make a report, for example, an advocate, an attorney, or an accredited representative on behalf of a client? Certainly. And we've had we've uh, engaged in conversations with um, uh, NGOs or other organizations on many occasions, and sometimes that's very useful because uh, before um, addressing the the issues, we can you know deal with with some of the concerns even in a hypothetical manner to kind of flush things out. But yes, of course, I think that um, any information from the source or through a third party is welcome. And I would imagine a person would be concerned about, you know, how the investigation is going, whether it's successful or whether you were unable to proceed. Is there a way to find out about the investigation once a person has made a report? Well, first let me say that the report is the very first step. And when we learn of an allegation, it is our duty to um, thoroughly investigate and vet the information. We would never bring a charge unless we have um, corroboration and, and strong, reliable evidence. So, um, and as I mentioned, these cases do take, and the cases, investigations, these matters, they do take um, time to investigate. Uh, we are not at liberty to share information about an investigation, but if and when um, a prosecution begins, that is charges are uh, brought against an individual, we certainly can share that public information with um, victims, witnesses, or, and other organizations. And you mentioned before that you work with Immigration and Customs Enforcement, which I think raises the question for some people, people who are undocumented, about whether they can contact your office without any concern of um, rousing the interests of enforcement about their own status and whether you have uh, confidentiality provisions. Well, let me stress that our focus is not on the legal status of victims and witnesses, our focus is on the conduct of human rights violators. Um, and we do not have a policy uh, of, of reporting um, the status of victims and witnesses to uh, law enforcement partners. But again, we work very, very closely with them. And our goal is to address concerns and to um, find solutions together so that we can bring these cases. We are very sensitive to the concerns of victims, um, including those without documentation, and we give witness and victim concerns very high priority. We will not go forward without addressing those concerns. And I might 
mention also that we have victim witness advocates in U.S. attorney's offices throughout the country who also engage in the process of resolving those concerns. Can a person who helps with a case be eligible for a U visa, for example? Does your office do those certifications? Well, as you know, U visas convey um, temporary non-immigration status to victims of crime. Um, and uh, uh, by statute, those immigration benefits are handled by law enforcement agencies, not by the Department of Justice. So as prosecutors, we have no um, involvement in the U visas, but again, we work closely with our law enforcement partners. However, we do have, um, it, we do engage in uh, the S visa process. S visas also can convey a temporary non-immigration status to witnesses um, of crime. And this program um, starts with law enforcement agencies sponsoring the witness for the benefit, and then, then the Department of Justice reviews that um, sponsorship and uh, decides whether or not to proceed with that. The statute provides that the witness must have cooperated in the prosecution of the case. Um, there, the statute also says that the uh, limit of S visas per year is 250. So once granted S visa status, um, that status is good for three years and uh, provides the witness with an opportunity to adjust status to lawful permanent residence. Um, in fact, most S visa holders do successfully adjust to LPR status. But this is all done on a case-by-case -case basis. It's initiated by law enforcement, and it's endorsed by the department. So there are programs available to assist undocumented aliens with participating as witnesses and victims under the U visa uh, statute. Um, in crimes against human rights violators. Where can a person find out more about the human rights and special prosecution section? If you Google HRSP, you'll come to our website, and there's information there. We also are engaged um, in a very robust outreach effort, and so we're happy uh, to address organizations or the diaspora immigrant communities who uh, would like us to come and talk with them about what we do and how we do it. So we, we encourage your advocates and your organizations and immigrant populations to get in touch with us and we're here to have a, a very good dialogue and to work together to go after human rights violators. Thank you, Kathleen. We will put your brochures on our website, and we hope that, that people will contact you as a result of this information. And thank you very much for joining us today, and thanks also for your work at the Human Rights and Special Prosecution section. Thanks very much for the opportunity to talk to you this morning.